All right, Genesis chapter 42 is where we left off. We've been following the life of Joseph, and we saw in our study together last time there how the Lord uh, really changed his life in the matter of a day. If you remember Joseph uh, being down in Egypt, uh, having been uh, through a process of 13 years uh, there in Potiphar's house, having first been sold as a slave, and then, of course, being faithful and being elevated there, and yet uh, then uh, being the unfortunate uh, victim of Potiphar's wife and her advancements and being falsely accused and then finding himself, uh, in a sense, uh, having everything stripped away and then sitting in a prison uh, for a period of years, but again, the Lord's hand still being upon him and uh, the Lord just continued to seem to have his hand upon this guy. And wherever he was at, he just remained faithful to the Lord, no matter what he went through or what life threw at him. He just continued, rather than getting bitter, to just, it seems, kind of keep a bended knee towards the Lord and a soft and a tender heart. And again, as we've seen many times with Joseph's life, how he just removes, um, really removes the excuses that so often that uh, many of us are very prone to make in regards to uh, you know, things in our own lives because, you know, here's this guy that's been through so much, uh, again, doesn't have a copy of the scriptures like you and I are blessed to have, doesn't have the indwelling of the Spirit of God that you and I have, doesn't have Christian accountability and fellowship and all these things. He's uh, been through so much and yet remained faithful to God. And God blessed him. God's hand remained upon his life and as we saw after sitting in prison for a number of years, being forgotten after he interpreted the dreams faithfully for uh, the, the, the butler and the baker, remember, uh, then Pharaoh has a dream. Uh, and now the most powerful man in the Egyptian empire, Pharaoh, has these dreams, and no one in his court of counselors is able to interpret them. And at that moment, uh, God takes away the divine amnesia that had been sitting uh, over the mind uh, of the uh, cupbearer who had been elevated back to his position. Joseph had interpreted his dream that that's what would happen. He'd be elevated back to his status. And Joseph said, hey, remember me when you get back to the right hand of Pharaoh and tell him, look, I shouldn't be here in prison. Uh, get me out of here. God puts two years of divine amnesia on his brain because God wants Joseph to be there so that he's at the right spot at the right time in exactly the right situation so that he could be there to then interpret Pharaoh's dreams that would save really the entire world civilization in that day because of the incredible pertinence of those dreams. So Pharaoh has those dreams, remember, which basically indicated there would be seven years of tremendous prosperity followed by seven years of the most severe, difficult famine that had ever come. Uh, and the cupbearer says to Pharaoh, look, I know a guy who could interpret dreams. He interpreted mine. His name's Joseph, and he's in the prison. And in a matter of a day, Pharaoh calls for him. He's elevated. He speaks to Pharaoh the interpretation of the dream and as well what he should do in relation to the dream, the plan he should put into action as a result of this coming season of prosperity followed by a severe famine so that there would be adequate grain storage provided for the years of famine to survive through it. And Pharaoh says, look, who in the world is there that is wise as this guy? If anybody should implement this plan on behalf of the empire, it's you. And he gets raised up to second in charge next to Pharaoh. And in one day he goes from the shackles and prison cell eating bread and water to being the prime minister of Egypt, where none other than no one but Pharaoh himself is the only one that wouldn't bow to him. And he finds himself there in that place elevated and told to implement this plan where for seven years during prosperity, they would save, remember, 20% of what came in to lay up reserves so that when the year seven years of famine came, they would have enough to survive through that time. And they had so much as through Joseph's administration of this uh, plan for uh, the Egyptian empire that not only were the people of Egypt able to survive, but all the surrounding countries which were experiencing this worldwide famine, it seems, they were able to come to Joseph as well and under his administration get grain to survive, which kind of brings us, again, kind of as a backdrop to where we're at at this point. Notice with me chapter 41, verse 
55, uh, again, uh, this is after the seven years of famine begin to come, and it was in all the lands, chapter 41, verse 55, says, so when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, uh, and Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, we saw this last time, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you do, and the famine, again, take note, was over the face of the whole earth. And Joseph opened up the storehouses that they had accumulated over seven years of just good stewardship and wise judgment. Again, laying up in plenty rather than just assuming, as is often, unfortunately, many do in today's culture. And uh, unfortunately, our government has made a lot of errors in this area. Hey, we have so much prosperity since we have such prosperity, we should live prosperous. And since we have extra, we should just spend it all. So since we have so much additional, we should just spend it, spend it, spend it, and live at a certain status. And, and then uh, there, when the, the difficult time comes and the famine comes, then there's nothing to get through the difficult hours. And life comes in seasons. It's just the way it works. Uh, but Joseph had this incredible wisdom, and because of it now, Look what happens. This is the famines over the face of the whole earth. And Joseph opened up the storehouses that they had prepared in seven years of prosperity. And he then sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. But look, verse 57, because this connects to chapter 42. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. So not only did they have enough to supply the Egyptian empire, but the other countries, as we'll see, Canaan, where Joseph's family was, Jacob and his other brothers, hundreds of miles away, other countries like that were going to Egypt and being sustained by the incredible grain storage that was there as well. Which brings us now to chapter 42, and for a moment we turn away from Joseph, and we go back now to what's happening with Joseph's family. Keep in mind, he has been separated from them for 20 years. It's been 20 years since, remember, they threw him in a pit and they sold him to a band of Ishmaelite uh, traders. And the brothers went back and told their father Jacob, in essence, hey, it looks like an animal got Joseph. Here's his uh, bloody robe that you had given to him. And, and, and for 20 years, Jacob has believed that he's dead. For 20 years, his brothers have lived with this lie and deception. They've told their father and everyone else that basically Joseph had uh, been murdered when really they had sold him off as a slave uh, to a bunch of traders and merchants that came by. So we now kind of go back to Canaan and, and see what's happening with Joseph's family, who he's been disconnected from for 20 years. Verse 1 of chapter 42 says, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, interesting, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. Now, we know that Jacob, like his you know, uh, fathers before him, Isaac and Abraham, predominantly they were herdsmen and they took care of animals. And we know that Jacob was a very wealthy man. We've seen that in prior chapters. But it does not matter how much wealth that you have, uh, if there's no food, uh, that doesn't really do a whole lot. You can't eat your, uh, you know, gold and silver and so forth. And, and so they're recognizing as starvation is beginning to set in, the drought, the famine and so forth that was severe in the land where they're in, that they're beginning to struggle. And it seems that impending starvation is coming upon their family and no doubt their entire uh, sort of entourage, remember they had household servants and so forth. So Jacob, feeling the pressure of circumstances and this famine, is at this point triggered to then encourage his sons, in essence, to take the lead and instruct his sons, look, what are you standing around staring each other for? We need food. I've heard there's grain down in Egypt. Go down to Egypt and go get food for us. Interesting that it says Jacob said to his sons, Hearing that there had been grain in Egypt, verse 40, uh, chapter 42, verse 1, he says, uh, why do you look at one another? In, in other words, for some reason, and we're not told why, for some reason they were delaying. They were aware, the family was, that there was grain in Egypt, but for some reason, instead of doing anything about it, 
there were apparently excuses and justifications and reasons that everybody was looking at everybody else, but nobody was stepping up and doing what needed to be done. You know, much much like you and I a lot of times. There are many times in our lives where uh, there's kind of a general understanding among a group of people or maybe a general understanding among a family because of circumstantial things that are happening or situations that we find ourselves in. And the answer is really evident, if you understand what I mean. It, it, it's, okay, it's very obvious what needs to happen. It's very evident what needs to be done. There's a problem that needs to be resolved here. There's something that needs to be taken care of or a course of action that it's clear that we need to take, but nobody's willing to take the course of action. And everybody instead kind of stands around and in hesitancy stares at one another, almost sometimes maybe thinking, well, uh, isn't that your job? I mean, you, shouldn't you take care of that? Or, I mean, certainly I, I'm not going to do that. I mean, and, and everyone's kind of just standing around staring at each other instead of acting upon what needs to be done. It reminds me of probably what took place in John chapter 13, where Jesus ends up washing the disciples' feet. They're eating in the upper room. It was customary and cultural that the lowest ranking slave or the person of lowest status in a home should wash feet at a meal. It was cultural, something that was always done. But they're sitting around, and probably, no doubt, everyone is staring at one another and realizing, uh, where's the foot washer? I mean, don't they have a slave in this joint? I mean, what, what, this is a nice upper room, and we got this nice meal, but nobody's washing our feet, can't they? I mean, all of us have, I mean, there's a bunch of dirty feet in this room. Who's, and everybody could see the dirty feet, but nobody wanted to do what was necessary to serve to take care of the situation or take care of the problem. Until eventually, no doubt, Jesus, he doesn't say anything. Jesus just gets up. He doesn't say, dun, 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 watch, I'm good. Jesus just gets up because he sees the need and he realizes no one else is doing anything about it. And Jesus gets up and he begins to demonstrate by example how to address a need when it's obvious. And I kind of see a similar thing here. Here's the... You know, the sons of Joseph, and they're standing around. And again, we could speculate, is it because maybe they're afraid if they go to Egypt, they may bump into their brother because they think he's down there. And so because they sold to a band of traders that were on their way to Egypt, and maybe every time they heard the word Egypt, they just felt so guilty in their conscience that they couldn't even bear to think about it. And sometimes when we have a guilty conscience, just the thought of certain things or certain places Again, we could speculate again and again why they wouldn't go. The simple thing is this. It was evident what they should do, and they just needed to get up and do it. And there are times in our lives where by evaluation, it becomes real clear. In this situation, they were starving. There was food in Egypt. They needed to go to Egypt and buy food. In your life, it may be something completely different. But sometimes you're facing a circumstance or you're in a situation and it's very obvious what you need to do. It's very clear. you got to do something. You can only delay so long. And you delay and you delay and you reason and justify. And, and there comes a point where I think it's, hey, it's time to stop staring at the problem. you got to do something. you got to take action. you got to get up and move forward. And there comes a time where action is just as important as observation, again, well, I'm praying about it, I'm praying about it. I think sometimes with Christians, that, that can become just a justification for patient disobedience. I'm, I'm still praying about that. There comes a point where I, I know in my own life where, you know, or other people, lives, that's just an excuse. You've been praying about that forever. You don't need to pray about it anymore. It's obvious what you need to do about that. You just need to do something. Stop staring at it and praying about it and move forward and do what's very obvious that God says needs to be done according to his word or what the circumstances are clearly pointing to. So he says, look, get up. He says, go down to Egypt and buy for us that we might live, verse 2, and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers, it says, went down to buy grain in Egypt. Notice, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin. Remember, he was the youngest of the twelve sons, and he was the only true brother to Joseph, they had the same mother, remember. Uh, Rachel was their mother. It says, Jacob would not send his brother Benjamin with the other brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Again, in the same way, remember that Joseph was like this treasured, precious son to Jacob. It seems that Benjamin, after Joseph disappeared out of the family, 
kind of took that same status a little bit. Again, he's the baby in the family. He, he's the he's the only now remaining son in Jacob's estimation of this favored wife. Remember, Rachel was the favored wife. That was the true love of Jacob, who he always wanted to be married to before everything happened with Leah and so forth with Laban. So Benjamin's got this special place, and he says, look, let, I already lost Joseph, and that was my one connection. I am not going to lose Benjamin, so you boys go, but I am not sending him. Your youngest brother is staying at home with me. The baby's staying at the house, he says. And the sons of Israel, verse 5, went out to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, take notice of this, and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Sound familiar? Remember back in chapter 37? The dreams that God gave Joseph as a young man when he was 17 and God's call began to come upon his life and God began to give to him. Remember those dreams? He had those two dreams which were symbolic of his actual family members bowing down before him at some point in their life. And his brothers, remember, hated him for that. What are you talking about, you little punk? You think we're going to bow down to you someday? Are you kidding me? We're actually going to bow down to you as our younger brother? Don't you understand how culture works? The older get the respect. You think we're going to bow down to you and serve you someday and actually give allegiance to you? And again, Joseph didn't fully understand what those dreams meant. His brothers didn't understand what those dreams meant. But look, 20 years later, what's happening? God's fulfilling those dreams. It took 20 years. But God's word, when it's spoken, will come to pass. What God says will come to pass. It may not come to pass in our time frame, but God will always bring his word to pass. And now circumstantially, look, these dreams are literally being fulfilled and coming true. As his brothers show up, look at verse 7. It says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Can you imagine what that was like after 20 years? There's different people coming before Joseph, making transactions on behalf of their country and territory. And now here come these 10 men from the land of Canaan, and it's been 20 years. Again, Joseph was 17. He's now 37. His older brothers were probably somewhere maybe, you know, say between their 20s and 40s. So now these men are between their 40s and 60s. And Joseph, after 20 years now, sees these brothers, and he recognizes them as they show up. And it says he recognized them, but acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And they said to him, he said to them, where do you come from? Now, we know from later down in the chapter, he's using an interpreter. He's not speaking to them in the Hebrew language. He's using an interpreter speaking to them in Egyptian because he's going to gradually reveal himself to them. And at this point, they don't recognize him. Again, keep in mind, it's been 20 years. This guy was 17 years old. He's now 37. He's in complete Egyptian garb. His face is cleanly shaved. as The Egyptians would shave their faces where Hebrews would grow facial hair. It was quite the opposite. He's using an interpreter. And on top of that, he's in a royal position as the prime minister of the nation. So they're not recognizing their 17-year-old brother at all. At this point in time, he's speaking through an interpreter and, and he's kind of questioning them like he's interrogating them like this high-powered official as the prime minister saying, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, interesting again, but they did not recognize him. And that must have been such a shock for him to, to see his brothers and be experiencing this. What kind of feelings came up after 20 years? Imagine seeing a family member you hadn't seen for 20 years that had done some really pretty traumatic things to you and the feelings that would come up and the thoughts as he sees these guys here. Verse 9 says, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. Imagine as they're bowing down to him, all of a sudden it clicks in his mind, those dreams, Oh my goodness, Lord, you've done it. This is it. You're actually fulfilling and how wonderful when, when we see the fruition of the things that God has spoken to our hearts about and those things we hold on to them by faith and we believe God said something to us and yet there's that, that journey of faith 
where we hold on to by faith what God has spoken to our hearts about certain things. And then when you finally see it coming to pass, the thing you've been praying for, the thing you know God promised to you, and, and you finally see it come to pass, and now Joseph is seeing this dream come to pass right before his eyes, and God is fulfilling exactly what God said he would do in his life as his very brothers are right there bowing down before him as he's the prime minister of Egypt. He had no idea how it would ever happen when he was 17 years old, but most of the time we don't know exactly how God's going to do what he does. God just gives us a little simple insight and he says, this is what I'm going to do, but then he doesn't tell us the rest of the details of exactly how he's going to do it. We just got to walk it out by faith, but it's a wonderful, gratifying thing when a desire is fulfilled and a dream comes to pass. And how interesting, they threw Joseph in a pit and sold him off to Egypt thinking what? That they were going to destroy his dream. What do you think of that, you dreamer? We'll destroy your dreams. You think you got a dream? We're going to wreck your dream and destroy your dream. And what they thought was destroying his dream was literally something God turned around and used to actually fulfill his dream because God's sovereign and God's superintends. So listen, what God says to you and the dream the Lord's put in your heart, you hang on to that. And let people do what they may. They may hurt you, mistreat you, throw you into pits, and, and you know do you wrong in every way. Listen, they can try and destroy what God intends to do in your life, and God will just use that and superintend and control and pull all the strings that he does because he's God. And he'll use what people try and do wrong to you to ultimately bring about exactly what he plans on doing in your life. They were trying to destroy Joseph's dream, and what they did actually contributed ultimately to the very fulfillment as they're now bowing down before him. They don't realize it's him yet, but he knows it's them. Verse 9 says, Joseph remembered the dream that he dreamed, and he said to them, look at this, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of our land. And they said, no, my Lord, but your, your servants have come to buy food. We're not spies. We just come to buy food from Canaan. We are all, look at this, verse 11, we are all one man's sons, we are honest men. Boy, that's a stretch. <laughs> We're honest men. <laughs> they don't know who they're talking to, imagine. Your servants are not spies, but he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. You're spying out the territory to try and ultimately take over the area, he's thinking. It's saying to them, again, he's kind of accusing them of this. Verse 13, and they said, Your servants, and imagine this, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest, Benjamin, that's true, is with our father today. And one is no more. Referring to Joseph. Again, they didn't know what had become of Joseph at this time. As far as they knew, Joseph was dead. Or again, maybe in their mind, they just considered he, he's no more. He's, he's gone. We'll never see him again. Imagine what that must have been like. Put yourself in Joseph's sandals. 20 years later, to hear them saying, hey, w w there's 12 brothers. The youngest is back home. And one of our brothers, he, he just he doesn't even exist anymore. And I wonder what emotions and things were going through Joseph as he heard his brothers saying these very things in this process of time. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying you are spies. So he continued to accuse them of being spies. In this manner, he says, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. So again, some look at this and say, wow, it seems like Joseph's got a little bit of bitterness going on there. I mean, he's kind of talking harsh to him, and now he's saying, well, we're going to, instead of just revealing himself, saying, guys, it's me, it's Joseph. You know, it's, and quite honestly, we're going to watch that there's a process whereby Joseph gradually, you'll see in small little ways, begins to give insight and reveal himself to his brothers, and ultimately he gives them a full disclosure and a full revelation of himself. But again, I think you have Joseph here wisely. Again, not that Joseph's bitter and he doesn't want to forgive. You see in this process, Joseph's heart is aching. He weeps multiple times because of his love for his brothers, and he wants to reconcile. He fully wants to reconcile. But he also needs to make sure that there's been a heart change and a different attitude. And he wants to see after 20 years, have you guys learned anything? 
Are you still the same way as you were before? And so he tests them on multiple occasions because he wants to see if there's any repentance in their hearts. And I think there's a measure of wisdom in this. Certainly we should want reconciliation when hurtful things happen in relationships. We should want to forgive. We should want to love. But again, by the same token, there is nothing wrong with at the same time being wise and testing in a situation where the heart of a person is at Maybe if something has happened very wrongly in the past to see where they're at at this point. So Joseph's just bringing them through a process to test where their hearts are at. To see indeed if they are honest. Are they telling the truth or still telling lies? Uh, Has there been any sense of regret and repentance in their heart for things they've done? How are they treating Benjamin, his other younger brother, in the same way that they were treating him? Is this true? Is he really alive? Or did something else happen to him and they're just... You know, pooling a story in this moment and situation. So he says, this is how it's going to work. He says, you're going to have to sit here in prison until your younger brother gets here. And he puts him in prison for three days. And for three days, they sit there in prison. And they get a little taste of what it was like for Joseph, no doubt, to have sat in prison for much longer. So for three days, there they are, sitting in prison. Verse 18 says, and then Joseph said to them on the third day... Do this and live, for I fear God. Again, take notice, I fear God, showing that even though he was an Egyptian ruler, he didn't follow the the polytheistic multiple gods that the Egyptians did. This particular man said, I fear God, a single God. Oh, there's an insight. This man says, I'm only doing this because I fear God. What I'm about to say, I'm saying because I fear God. I have a reverence for God, for the one true God, which these men knew as well. Do this, he says, for I fear God. If you are honest men, notice he he gives mercy to them now, let one of your brothers be confined to the prison house, but the rest of you go carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring back your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified again. What's he doing? I want to see, I'm not just going to take you for your word. Again, there's nothing wrong with verifying people's words. He says, look, I want to verify you're telling me the truth. So this is what we're going to do. He, he, he gives them incredible mercy. He releases them from the prison. He says, one of you will remain here. The rest of you take grain as you came for to feed your families. Go back to your homeland and then bring your youngest brother back to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. And it says, and they did so. Verse 21, and then they said to one another in the midst of this, notice, here's the response of the brothers because of all that's happening in this moment. They said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear, therefore, this distress has come Upon us, and Reuben answered and said to them, Did I not speak to you, saying, Don't sin against the boy? And you wouldn't listen. I told you so, he says. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Take note of verse 21 and 22. Because as this situation happens there, when they go to Egypt by grain, and this man, who's the prime minister, they don't know it's their brother, kind of treats them roughly. He accuses them of being spies. He throws them in prison for three days and lets them kind of sit there and think through some things and kind of be nervous and not know, hey, are we going to get killed or we're going to be stuck here in prison forever? And then he releases them. He says, I'll tell you what, one of you is going to have to stay here. The rest of you go home, bring food back, and you bring back your youngest brother or you're never going to get your other brother here back as an exchange kind of as a captive. And as all these things are happening... These kind of misfortunes and some of this trouble. Look what happens in verse 21 and 22. That causes them to say, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. What do they do? Guilty conscience. Something they did 20 years ago comes back into their mind and they interpret their present troubles, in a sense, as payment for the things that they did wrong 20 years ago. The 20-year-old skeleton that's been in their closet and their guilty conscience comes back and they say, look, the reason this distress has come upon us, they say, verse 21, therefore this distress has come upon us 
because of what we did to Joseph 20 years ago. Remember when he was down in the pit and he was crying and begging, please let me out of here, guys. And they said, we didn't even care. We were you know, totally callous. We just ate our lunch and we didn't even listen to him. And they said, what's happening to us right now is because of what we did to him 20 years ago. You want to talk about the power of a guilty conscience? Something he did 20 years ago, they did 20 years, is still haunting them. You know, guilt, is it not, is a powerful force in a human being's life. And a guilty conscience is something that has incredible sway. You know, one man said before, a guilty conscience sees every trouble as sin's penalty. A guilty conscience sees every trouble as sin's penalty. And if there's something that we've done that we have a guilty conscience over, and it has never been forgiven and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that guilt taken away, which only Jesus can do, it is amazing how powerful and effective a guilty conscience can be to torment a person. Something from 20 years ago, it's still haunting them. And their present trouble, just because they have trouble, they think this is directly because of what we did 20 years ago. You know, and if you're here tonight and you're still struggling with a guilty conscience because you've never let Jesus take the guilt away from you, listen, it, it, it can powerfully haunt us. And whereby we have a trouble or problem, we think this is always because of that. It's always because of that, what I did 10 years ago, what I did 5 years ago, what I did 20 years ago. That's why it is the most wonderful thing in the world to come into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ because only Jesus can take guilt away. And there is nothing more healthy and wonderful for the emotional and mental state of a human being than to know their guilt has been taken away. Nothing more wonderful than to know, hey, yes, I did that, but I'm free. I'm clean. Because guilt is destructive, man. It has a power. And these brothers, man, how sad here. 20 years they've been carrying this, and they're still bringing it up, still interpreting what's going on in their life as a punishment because of what they did of Joseph. And imagine Joseph hearing them say this out loud. They're talking about this, and they have no idea this is Joseph. Hey, this is because of what we did to Joey you know, 20 years ago. And he's listening to all this go on. Verse 23 says, They did not know that Joseph, notice, understood them. So they are not even aware he's understanding what they're saying as he's listening. For again, he spoke to them, there we see, through an interpreter. Which, interesting, goes to show, even in this ancient day, there were various languages, remember, because of the Tower of the Babel, and already there apparently were people who were serving occupationally as interpreters. This interpreter was serving for Joseph, who was communicating in Egyptian, and his brothers who were communicating in Hebrew, and in that day. They had interpreters already helping with language barriers. Verse 24, And Joseph turned himself away from them and wept. Again, he's overwhelmed with emotion as he sees his brothers under the duress of this grief and he wants to embrace them he wants to reveal himself and he's just overcome with emotion it says he went away and wept and then he returned to them again once he composed himself and talked with them and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes and Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore notice every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, thus he did for them. Again, notice the graciousness of Joseph. He doesn't have to do this, but Joseph says, you know what, give them grain, and you know what, put all their money back in their sack. I know they came to buy it, but the purchase price they gave, put all the money back in their sacks. Send them home, not only with grain, he tells the servants, but put all the money back into their sacks. What's he doing? He's being gracious to them. Do they deserve his grace? Do they deserve his kindness? No, but what's Joseph a type of? Joseph's a type of Jesus. Again, we're going to see Joseph wept. John 11 says Jesus wept. Jesus wept because he cares about the state of our soul. And Jesus, does he not? He doesn't only just forgive us, but, but, but he blesses us. And he's gracious to us in our most undeserving condition. And he restores things in our life that you know really we don't deserve to have restored. And here Joseph is being kind to his brothers. And again, he's gradually revealing himself to his brothers. And isn't that what Jesus does? You know, I know in my life, it was kind of a gradual process where the Lord began to draw me. And, and I didn't recognize it at first, like Joseph's brothers. And little by little, Jesus was drawing me in. 
and he was drawing me in. He was showing me little things about himself until that day of my salvation when he revealed himself to me in the clearest sense. But again, we kind of have this same thing going on here. So he keeps Simeon, sends them away with their grain and their money restored to their sacks, and they loaded their donkeys, verse 26, with the grain and departed. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at their encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored. There it is, right in my sack. Look at this, verse 28. Then their hearts failed them. The idea is they were terrified. And they were afraid, saying to one another, Look what they say. What is this God has done to us? What's going on? First they're thinking, Oh my goodness, first this seemingly harsh man just accused us of being spies now it looks like we're thieves (laughs) now it looks like the money we brought to pay for our grain to make a good fair business transaction here's all the money that we brought to pay for the grain how's it all back in our sacks oh my goodness now this guy who's got our brother and we got to go back and face him after we get benjamin he already thinks we're spies Now he's going to, when we go back, be twice as angry because now we look like thieves. Now we look like we didn't pay for our grain and that we robbed him and we actually ripped him off uh, because of our time there. So, again, interesting. You see the guilt in their conscience? They say, what has God done to us? God's getting us. Now, isn't that a strange thing? If if you, you know, found all of a sudden additional money, do you say, what's God doing to me? You go, oh, God, thank you. Extra money. I found extra money. <laughs> but when you got a guilty conscience, you interpret everything differently. When you're living with a guilty conscience, you always feel like God's out to get you. And even when God's trying to do good things in your life, you can't accept the good things God's doing. Because you're like, I know there's there's some trick behind this. God's got some trick up his sleeve. What's, he, what's God up to now? What's he going to do to me? He's going he's gonna to pull the carpet out from under me. I know he is. And, and, and again, instead of being thankful, they're terrified. What's God doing? God's going to get us. Again, the guilty conscience. How wonderful that Jesus alone can take away a guilty conscience. It's such a miserable thing to live in guilt. Verse 29, Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that happened to them, saying, The man who is Lord in the land spoke roughly to us. And he took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We're not spies. We're 12 brothers. They recount what they said. Of our father, one is no more. The youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. And that man said, the Lord of the country, to us, by this I will know your honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And then bring your youngest brother to me so I shall know that you are not spies but that you are honest men and I will grant your brother to you and then you may trade in the land. So they recount the story to their dad, Jacob. Look, this is what happened. And we had to leave Simeon behind. And he knows that Benjamin is here. And he said the only way that we're going to get Simeon back and that we can have continual free trade with him in his land is if we bring Benjamin back to verify to him that we're not spies, that we are honest men, and that we're telling the truth, and he's expecting us to bring Benjamin back, that we might get Simeon out of prison and be able to freely trade in the land with him, which was necessary if they were going to survive, because only Egypt had grain in their economy at this time. Verse 35, then it happened as they emptied their sacks, it seems the rest of them begin to open up their sacks now, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Now they look like major crooks because everybody, it wasn't just one person, everybody's got their money restored. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Now Simeon is no more. And he's saying, and you're telling me you want to take Benjamin there? <laughs> he's just, I've already lost Joseph. Again, these sons, you know, the story of Jacob's sons is just, you know, ay, ay, ay. You know, we think we have about Just, what are you doing? He says, Joseph's gone. Now you've lost Simeon. And you're telling me you want to take 
You want to take Benjamin back with you. Verse 36, he says, all these things are against me. In other words, he's saying everything is going wrong. Everything is against me. Everything is working against me. Now, from his perspective, that was his interpretation. From God's perspective, it was actually completely opposite. Everything wasn't against him. What he didn't realize, quite honestly, everything that was happening that he felt like was against him and that was falling apart was actually something God was all working together for his ultimate good. True? God wasn't working everything against him. Everything was actually working on his behalf. It looked like everything was against him, but the truth of the matter is everything was working and contributing towards the ultimate plan of what God was doing to bring him back into a reunion with his son Joseph, to be able to go down to the land of Goshen where they would be able to be taken care of and survive. And it's a great reminder, again, because that's his human perspective. For you and I, there are times in our lives where from your perspective and vantage point, you're going to look at all that's going on in your life and maybe some difficulties, maybe hardships, maybe even tragedies and, and difficult things you go through. And from your interpretation, you think, man, everything's wrong. Everything is against me. It seems like everything is falling apart and everything is against me. And the reality is, even though all those things may be happening, the truth of the matter is God may be working everything for you. And God's got a plan. And God's got a purpose. This is a Romans 8.28 thing back in the Old Testament. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So things may happen that appear to be against us. And God says, but listen, God says, Though the world may be against you, God is for us. It doesn't matter who's against us because God is for us. And when God is for us, he has a way to orchestrate things that look very bad and negative and to ultimately bring them all about. He just doesn't know the whole picture yet, and he doesn't see it from his perspective. So tonight, maybe it looks like everything's against you. Don't lose heart. truth of the matter is, it may not be working against you. God may be working everything for your ultimate good. Let his plan unfold. Give him time. Watch what he's doing and know he's a good and a loving father. And don't let the emotions and the feelings and your own personal interpretation discourage you. Continue to walk by faith. He says, all these things are against me. But that wasn't necessarily true. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, look what he says. Kill my sons if I don't bring him back to you. And put in my hands and I will bring him back to you. And he says, no, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. And if any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring my gray hair down with sorrow to the grave. So again, Reuben, just, he just pipes up and says something hasty. He says, look, you're not bringing my son. There's no way. You are not bringing Benjamin down there. I'm not going to risk his welfare. I don't care. I'm not going to lose him. Everything's already going wrong. That's the end of it. You're not sending Benjamin down. Reuben, thinking, well, i got to say something to convince Dad here, he speaks hastily, and whenever you and I speak hastily and just shoot from the hip and say, typically, we're going to regret what we say. And he speaks up, again, look at his reasoning. Uh, look, he says, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back. Now, now, what would that solve for anybody? I'll tell you what. You can kill two of your grandsons. If I, don't, if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. I mean, what kind of deal is that? But you know what it's a reminder of to me? That when somebody is wrestling with a guilty conscience, uh, again, th their interpretation is just out of whack. When somebody's dealing with guilt, which all these sons of Jacob are still dealing with, when somebody's living under guilt, they never interpret things properly. Their perspective is very fuzzy. And here, his perspective and his reasoning is just way off base. But again, as, as, you know, it was a foolish suggestion. And, and Jacob just completely refutes. And he says, no, you are not taking him. And he kind of stubbornly digs his heels in and says, you're not bringing him. Well, it says, now the famine was severe in the land. So again, it got more and more difficult as time went on. We're not told how long. But Jacob has dug his heels in. You're not taking Benjamin. Absolutely not. But God allows the famine to get more severe, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt 
that their father said to them, again, circumstances pressuring him now, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, uh, Dad, remember? The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not even see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, again Jacob, another name for Israel, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? What did you even why'd you do that for? Why did you tell the guy that you had another brother? Well, he said, he asked. The man asked. They said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known? Again, Dad, we're not mind readers. How could we have known that he was going to say to us, Bring your brother down? And then Judah said to Israel's father, Send the lad with me. We will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. He says, I'll take personal responsibility for him, Dad. I'll be responsible to make sure he's safe and gets back. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. So again, you know, kind of the stubbornness in Jacob's heart, uh, unfortunately, was just really creating a delay of the inevitable anyway. He says, look, if we hadn't lingered this long, Dad, quite honestly, we could have gone all the way there and back probably twice already if we hadn't lingered and delayed. And again, uh, sometimes delaying doesn't do anything but just create more difficulty they just kept riding it out as long as they could and the famine got more and more and more severe to where ultimately jacob has to just relinquish his will to what ultimately needed to happen it says their father israel said if it must be so then do this take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels carry down a present for the man a little bomb a little honey and spices and myrrh and pistachio nuts, and almonds, and take double money in your hand. Again, notice, take double money, and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. So he says, look, bring some presents to represent yourself well, some of the produce of the land here, but also not only bring back new money to buy grain, but he says extra money to make restitution for the money that was given to you, just tell them, look, maybe it was an oversight, but we're not crooks. Here's the money that we owe you for the first time that we bought grain. There must have been some kind of an oversight. And take your brother also, arise, and go back to the man. Verse 14, he says, in kind of just relinquishing things over now, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother and Benjamin, and if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So in essence, he says, look, I, I realize there's nothing else I can do. The circumstances are what they are. You're going to have to go. So he gives them some counsel, and he now turns them over to go back down to Egypt to seek to, to get their brother Simeon released, trusting that God was going to have to watch over Benjamin. And, and he's kind of forced to do what? He's kind of forced to release his own fears and to just relinquish the matter over to God and to just say by faith, you know what? What happens, happens. In essence, that's what he's saying. Go, he says, may God Almighty give you mercy. I pray it works out. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. But again, what's happening? The sovereignty of God is, is forcing Jacob now into a place where he's having to do something that it's really not his preference. And it's pushing him way outside of his comfort zone and he's having to confront his own fears. God, again, is using a worldwide famine to orchestrate all these circumstances to get a family reconciled. He's using a worldwide famine to restore relationships that were broken and fractured. He's using a worldwide famine to get Jacob and all Israel 
over into Egypt so that they would ultimately end up being in the area of Goshen, where remember then, according to prophecy, that's where they were supposed to go, and they'd be there for 400 years in Egypt until ultimately God would raise up Moses as a deliverer, second phase in Israel's history, and then God would deliver them out of the land of Egypt. And what's God doing? God is using difficult circumstances. And God has a way at times of putting the pressure on, turning up the heat, bringing the pinch in our lives. But in those situations, it does not necessarily mean God's always doing something destructive. We have to be careful how we interpret things. Because God can take difficulties and make them very constructive in our lives. To cause things to happen where people become humbled, where hearts become softened, where relationships get resolved, where people are forced to confront their fears and relinquish their will and to say, you know what, I guess I'm going to have to just trust God and do the right thing. And here we see, as we go through these chapters, that's exactly what God's doing. Interesting to me how he superintends over circumstances, and at the same time he's working in real personal ways in these individual lives, in Jacob's life, in the lives of his brothers, in the lives of Joseph, to ultimately bring about this reconciliation. So we're going to have to stop there for tonight, but read ahead. We'll continue to, to watch this story as we see Joseph uh, ultimately reveal himself to his brothers. Father, thank you for tonight and time to assemble here together uh, to study this portion of your word, to learn from the narrative that you've given to us here in the book of Genesis, the history of Israel and how you, Lord, accomplished your purposes and plans for them as a nation. And Lord, how at the same time you were working in individual lives like Joseph and Jacob and the brothers and, and Lord how you were superintending over all these things Lord through difficulties and through years and things that transpired Lord to orchestrate your perfect plan for each and every one of their lives to bring healing to bring restoration and how Lord you even through all the difficulties despite how it looked had really wonderful and good things on the other side. Father, I pray tonight, even maybe for any in this room, facing things that are difficult or challenging, that you would assure them that because of your great love and your awesome power, that, Lord, you have good things on the other side, and that, Lord, they could trust you in faith and release the fears and the things that would consume them and know that you're at work, Lord. And we thank you, too, for taking our guilt away in Jesus. And we pray and ask these things in his precious name. Amen.